uh, this is in the New Testament, should clear up everything for you once and for all. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Ephesians 5 verse 17. He says this, understand what the Lord's will is. And I read that and I'm like, oh, okay, that is so helpful. Thank you, Paul, because that's exactly what I needed. That's great. I love it when, didn't you love it when you had school teachers who were just like, let me teach you how to do this. Understand it. There you go. Next. You know, this is not helpful, Paul. Uh, So I appreciate that. But (laughs) the question is, obviously I've taken that a little bit, I've pulled that phrase a little bit out of context, but can we know God's will? And if so, how? Those are the questions. And we actually touched on this subject a couple years ago in a series that I did called Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. How many of you remember that series? And you remember all eight parts. You can tell me what they were. And Okay. Um, it's funny because I knew when I was getting ready for this series for this fall that I had touched on God's will somewhere in a series somewhere recently, and I couldn't remember where it was, so I had to do a little word search on my computer. I'm like, oh, it was only two years ago during the B-Hack series. Because for those of you who are insiders at Faith Community, you, we just call them B-Hacks, the Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. You don't get it. That's okay. Um, you're not an insider then because some of us know exactly what we're talking about. Right, Donna? Right. We asked this question in the series. Can we know God's will? And if so, how? We looked at one aspect of this process of discovering and discerning God's will. But after having lots of conversations over the, even the last couple of years with lots of people and with some of you who are in this room about this whole idea of discovering and discerning God's will for our lives, I thought we should probably take some more time to dive a little bit deeper into this topic. Frankly, I am often pretty shocked when I hear people who are followers of Jesus and would consider themselves Christians, and when I hear their rationale for some behaviors and for some values and for some decisions, and somehow they are convinced that where they are living and the way they are approaching life and the decisions they are making are somehow God's will for them, even when it doesn't line up with what the Scripture clearly says, even when it doesn't line up with what all of their Christian friends are saying to them, and even when it doesn't line up with what all of their favorite and most respected Christian authors have to say. Have you noticed, uh, I got really uncomfortable there real fast, sorry, I didn't even warm you up for that, but have you noticed that when it comes time to make a major decision, most of us experience a heightened interest in knowing God's will when it comes to a major decision? It's not that we don't care most of the time, but when we're making a choice about things like a job opportunity or selecting a college or determining the future of a romantic relationship or deciding where to live or where to go to church, we just don't want to blow that. That's a big one. So we seek God's will with extra fervor and we pray for it and we ask about it and we search for it and we talk about it with anyone that'll listen, especially those people in our inner circle whose whose input we respect, all in the the hopes that somehow... It'll become clear to us what God wants us to do. Some of us look for signs. Some of us look for divine coincidences, uh, those mystical open doors that supposedly indicate God's leading. Other people look deep within themselves. They're looking for some kind of supernatural insight or some sense of inner peace to show the way. Other people play a version of Bible roulette where they just kind of flip through the pages of their Bible until they find a passage that seems to speak directly to their situation, whether they've taken it out of context or not. Some of us uh, go on this, we kind of major on like a fact-finding mission, and we, we, we seek out wise counsel, or at least the advice of a few friends who we know will speak truth to us, and almost all of us pray a little bit more. Lord, show me your will in this area, please. And as I've watched the way that we tend to go about determining God's will, I've been con- become convinced that the majority of us really do believe and we assume that God's will is both important and elusive. We've just accepted that. 
it's important for obvious reasons. Anytime God has a specific plan or a preference in mind, only a fool ignores that. And a bigger fool defies that. Just ask Jonah. Jonah was a man who ran. I mean, God showed up, spoke to him personally, gave him specific, it was a different time, gave him specific instructions, where he wanted him to go, who he wanted him to talk to, what he wanted him to say. It couldn't get any clearer than it was for Jonah. And Jonah refused. He defied the call of God. He headed off in completely the opposite direction. And you know the rest of the story. And he spent the weekend in the belly of a fish or a whale or something. And after a few days, gets puked out onto the beach. And that makes a nice flannel graph story, if it's not too graphic. But it's also kind of scary stuff and a little bit disgusting, if you think about it. I think the point of the story is that defiance is not a good option. And I, and I talk to people who get all hung up on, did he, was he really, was it a fish or was it a whale? Was it really three days or was he dead or was he alive? Or did he really, I, you know what, whatever. The point of the story is when God calls you and it's crystal clear, do not defy that. As for God's will being elusive, it's elusive because it just is, isn't it? Which raises a troubling question. <clears throat> if God's will is so important, why is it so hard to find? I think the surprising answer is that it isn't really hard to find. Most of God's will is spelled out in black and white. It's not hidden. There's no cosmic Easter egg you know, hunt that's required to you know, see who can find it and who gets it first and who gets the most and who gets left with an empty basket. But unfortunately, that's how many of us feel. Um, maybe you can identify with, uh, with this scene, and I've shown this before over the years, but this scene from uh, Bruce Almighty. Check this out. Okay, God. You want me to talk to you? Talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Give me a signal. I need your guidance, Lord. Please send me a sign. Oh, what's this joker doing now? Okay. All right. I'll try it your way. All right. Lord, I need a miracle. I'm desperate. I need your help, Lord. Please, reach into my life. Hey. Uh, what the... So, it's 
funny, I had chosen, I decided to do this a couple weeks ago, show that clip, and I'm surfing through the TV yesterday, and that movie was on. So uh, anyway, you, if you want to get the whole story, um, there's not a lot of good theology in that movie, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> Here's the thing about the way that we approach God's will, is a lot of times I'm convinced we're looking for the wrong thing. We are. We're like a little. We're like a kid who mistakenly thinks that Easter eggs are square, and you know, and and they, they, we walk right past the ones that are right there that are most obvious, and we act like we can't find them. And the problem stems from a concept that many of us that have, have been grown up in the church, we've been taught from birth, we've been led to believe that God has a highly detailed blueprint for our life, and that blueprint includes a specific preordained job or career and a house and a spouse and a car and everything in between like a big cosmic game of mash like middle school girls used to play. I don't know if they still do. As a result, um, you're like, how do you know about that? Just don't ask. As a result, we spend a lot of time looking for that specific person, that special place, that one thing that we think God has set aside for us. It's like the egg that we hunt for, but... Can I just tell you that egg doesn't exist? The I, I believe that the idea of a detailed blueprint for our life is a myth. And if, that, and if, and if you're just kind of, if that is hard for you to hear, and you're like, I don't know about that, I, I'm totally willing to you know, sit down and drink coffee with you this week and we'll figure it out. And, and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I've got the wrong angle on this. But for me, from where I sit, I think it confuses God's omniscience, which is that God knows all things. It confuses God's omniscience with his divine will. They're not the same thing. No question God knows everything, down to the number of hairs on our head. The Bible actually says that. But doesn't mean that he has a plan for how many hairs we have on our head or that we're in rebellion if we try to replace some of the ones that go missing. We know who you are. The f- <laughs> I got a haircut yesterday. Does that mean now that I'm in rebellion because God knew the number and now he's got to figure it all out again? The fact is God doesn't have a blueprint for our lives. Never has, never will. He does, however, have a game plan for our life. And the difference is important. That's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. Consider how a blueprint works. <clears throat> a blueprint, just so I get a little sense. How many of you have ever been part of building a house or anything? You've had, to, you, you've had to look over blueprints, and, okay, and maybe you've had, okay, you get it. A blueprint contains a specific set of instructions that spell out everything in painstaking detail. It's so specific that any skilled craftsman with the ability to read and follow a set of plans can build exactly what the architect and the engineers had in mind. But imagine a builder who doesn't agree with the architect's design and ignores the parts of the blueprint that he or she doesn't like or doesn't understand. Then the office have a major problem on their hands. Along with suffering the wrath of the architect and the owner, he'll have to face the ire of a building inspector. And even worse, he'll probably have to pay the cost of restoring everything back to the way it was originally called for anyway. You don't mess with blueprints. You follow them. For many of us, though, this has become the default metaphor of God's will. A game plan is very different. Rather than spelling out everything in detail, it sets forth some general guidelines, some general principles with, with, with lots of freedom and lots of flexibility in there for adjustments as the game unfolds. Let's, let's take a football game as an example. How many football fans are you, you watch football because it's on TV or you are aware that there's football and you know that it involves 
footballs. <laughs> wow, I may have to totally change this analogy here. Because seriously, like football, can you hang with me a little bit? You know, like if you, you watch enough football that if you're looking at the screen, you know who the quarterback is? How many of you would say yes, I know? You know how, right? You know how to know? Do you know how to know? No, not, no, no, because a name doesn't mean anything. If you don't, he's, well, it doesn't, to say he's lined up behind the center doesn't mean anything if you don't know who the center is. He's the guy with a little green dot in the back of his helmet, just so you know, okay? It's true. He's got, it means he's got a radio in his helmet. That's what that means. Let's take a look at, oh, this dude, you know who that is. No, seriously, come on, you can answer. You don't want to for some reason. Are we protesting something? Sorry. Um, <laughs> Some NFL quarterbacks, not all of them, but most of them these days, and mostly because he made it really acceptable to do this, um, wear a wristband that has the plays from that day's specific game plan written on a card. And here's the thing. like Every game, every opponent has a different game plan. Here's, this is Tom Brady. Um, here's his, uh, here's his uh, wristband. Let's stop right there for a second. Because if you ever wondered exactly what an NFL quarterback is looking at when he takes a peek at his wrist, usually it's on his left hand, this is why, this is, this is why quarterbacks get paid so much money. It's, well, it doesn't totally add up, but it is their responsibility to memorize all of this code, to know exactly what it means for all the other 10 players on the field, to execute those plays, all while trying to avoid the 300-pound lineman who desperately wants to plant him into the sod. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Let's zoom in a little bit, Corey, if we can, on the next screen. Let's just take this one play, play number 45 at the very bottom. We can, you kind of see that? Uh, play number 45, uh, they, I don't know if they ran this play or not uh, this week, but G. Brown, RT-74, Haas X follow. There are six components that establish that, that this is addressing. It establishes the formation, the pass protection, the routes that the receivers are going to run. Gun... G, stands for gun, tells a quarterback to line up in the shotgun. The Patriot system, Brown is an empty formation, no running backs. Three receivers to one side, two to the other side, and Wright tells the tight end what side of the formation to line up on. 74 signifies five-man empty protection. Haas is a common, some of you are totally, you're writing this down because you're just learning. Haas is a combination of short hook route and a vertical route uh, down the seam. X follow is a combo with the slot receiver running an out and the outside receiver, the X receiver, following a, uh, running a follow route where he's going to break to the end just short of the other guy. So that's what that means. So every time that, that the quarterback comes to the line, the coaches give him two to three plays that he can call. And even after they break the huddle, when he gets to the line of scrimmage, the play clock is winding down. they got 45 seconds to get this play off. And you're like, what takes so long? Now you know. Depending on what he reads on the other side of the ball, he still has the option to change the play because on-the-fly adjustments are built into every play. What start at, starts out as a post pattern turns into something else altogether. If the linebackers are showing blitz or the defensive backfield shows a scheme that the offensive coordinator wasn't expecting. And all of this happens so quickly. And, and, and if, if you're like, really, so quickly, there's so much sitting around waiting in football. Listen, as soon as one play ends, the offensive coordinator, who's either upstairs or on the sidelines, calls the next play into the quarterback, who threw the radio in his helmet. A few seconds later, when the quarterback leads the team to the line of scrimmage, he looks over the defensive package. He can either go with the play that was called, or he can choose another play from the game plan that was included in the day's game plan. And a lot of times, it's right there on his wristband. No quarterback throws the ball to a well-covered receiver just because that's the only way the play was originally designed. 
unless he wants to sit on the sidelines for the rest of the game, or maybe his name is Eli Manning. But instead, <laughs> just, just playing into my Patriots fans' hands here. Instead, he's got a, got a couple options. He can throw the ball away, or he can change the play at the line of scrimmage. And he can do this, and he can still be working within the pre-established game plan. It's not a case of, okay, you do as you please. You're the quarterback, you know, whatever. Us coaches, we're just here to, to look like we're doing stuff. You just, you just go do whatever you want to do. No, it doesn't work that way. The, play, the quarterback can't decide to run out of bounds and then sneak back onto the field and hope nobody's looking and throw a pass to an ineligible receiver. Those moves aren't allowed. But within the rules of the game and within the guidelines of the game plan that the coaching staff has developed, he's got lots of options. If plan A breaks down, he's expected to try something else to help win the game. That's the goal. This is not a blueprint. A blueprint has no plan B. If plan A gets messed up, everything's messed up. So it's back to the drawing board. In fact, in most cases, changes to the blueprint cost you big money. So, there's a long roundabout analogy here, but do you, just ask yourself, are you sure that you want a blueprint? Is that really what you want from God? I find that lots of people are discomforted at the thought that God might not have a detailed blueprint for every aspect of their life. Because that, that idea, especially if you spend much time around church, that idea gets so ingrained in us that it's become like this source of great comfort and reassurance. Oh, God has a plan, and it's all going to work out great, and let me misquote some scripture and use it out of context, and I'll feel pretty good about myself. Think about this for a minute. Do you really want a detailed blueprint for your life? Because imagine what would happen. If God's will for your life was actually like a blueprint, detailed down to the parking space that he set aside for you on Sunday right after church at Walmart. Oh, it must be the Lord's will. Okay. What happens when in a fallen world, others decide to ignore God's blueprints for their lives? If you want to to lean into the blueprint thing. My question is, what happens then when other people choose to ignore God's blueprint for their lives? Because it's not so bad if we're just talking about a parking space. I can find another one. But what if they buy the house that God had picked out for us? Or what if they cheat on an entrance exam and they take the last open spot in the college that we were supposed to go to? You're like, that can't happen. God has everything. He knows everything. He would step in and stop it. Really? If so, then humankind's free will is a sham. Or what happens if in a moment of rebellion, Joe Christian dates and marries the wrong woman? And if God won't allow that to happen, then we're not, not much more than puppets on a string. And if he does allow it, then, then God might have just put the, or Joe, Christian, might have just put the whole world in a jam. And here's what I mean, because the poor girl he was supposed to marry is stuck now. The blueprint for her life is ruined forever. Same for the guy who was originally intended to marry Joe's new wife, because he jumped the gun. Unless those two both stay single or marry one another, Joe may well have started a chain reaction that will eventually mess up marriages worldwide for generations, which just might explain a lot of things. But this isn't to say, okay, I was just, sorry. This isn't to say that God never has a specific and highly detailed plan in mind. Sometimes he does. In the Old Testament, he told the prophet Hosea to marry Gomer. Now, I'm going to tell you what. If if I'm to marry a woman named Gomer, God is going to have to speak very clearly about that. Just, 
He told Moses and the children of Israel exactly where to camp and when to move during their wanderings in the wilderness. He sent Jeremiah the prophet to a potter's house and told him to watch for an object lesson. He changed the Apostle Paul's itinerary more than once and wouldn't allow him to go into certain parts of Asia or Bithynia. Those kinds of explicit instructions are the exceptions, and maybe you've experienced them, but you would admit that that's not the norm. It's not the norm even in our, the lives of our biblical heroes. The fact is, we have a lot more freedom within God's will than any blueprint would ever allow. That's the main reason that the details of God's will sometimes seem hard to find. They often aren't there. We're looking for a detail that God never included. We're asking which one, and it's quite possible he's saying, I don't care, it's up to you, you get to choose. In the vast majority of situations and decisions, we get a lot of latitude. God, listen, God doesn't care where we work so much as how we work. He doesn't care where we live so much as how we live. He doesn't even care so much whom we marry, as long as it's within the faith, so much as how we do marriage. Look at the actual words of the New Testament. You'll notice there's very little emphasis on the kinds of decisions that we commonly stress over. Instead, the primary emphasis is on godly character. It's on daily obedience as a pattern and a characteristic of our lives. God doesn't care so much where we work as how we work, where we live as so much as how we live, or even who we marry so much as how we do marriage. Certainly, listen, when we're faced with a decision, we should pause to check the Scriptures and ask if God has any specific input. If He does, either through the Scriptures, through that inner leading of the Holy Spirit, through the advice of godly friends, we have to do exactly as He leads us to do. But we shouldn't be surprised when most of the time his silence says, it doesn't matter, this one's your call. Oh, that's not all. A blueprint uh, mentality has some other significant spiritual downsides. Um, Besides being inaccurate and somewhat faulty uh, metaphor, you know, for how God's will actually works, it also tends to produce a couple of dangerous uh, spiritual side effects. In particular, paralyzing fear and a skewed focus. Let me just talk about that for a second. First, we get paralyzed by fear. If we're operating within a blueprint mentality, we're looking for a blueprint. We can't figure out why the details aren't there. Where is God? Give me the, show me the thing. I need to know exactly what you need me to do. When we get locked into that, we tend to eventually become paralyzed by fear. In the spring of uh, 2005 and through the fall of 2009, I worked for the city of Ellsworth as their communication liaison on a couple road construction uh, projects, the High Street Widening and the Myrick Street Beckwith Hill Triangle Project. I coordinated the communication between the city and the state DOT and contractors and business owners and developers and property owners and so on. In this role, I got to work with engineers and I got to walk with, work with engineers and contractors and foremen and safety coordinators and public relations directors and city department heads and so on. And on each of these project, I, projects, I worked with estimators. Estimators are a special breed. Right, Jared? Um, an estimator's job is to take a set of plans or blueprints. Um, the plans that we used in these two projects were... Uh, They were a couple, uh, well, there are several hundred pages, a couple inches thick. They were ridiculous. The estimator's job is to take these plans and pull out everything that has to do with completing the project. This is just, this is just a, wouldn't you say, Jared gave me this, wouldn't you say this is a fairly straightforward, uh, that's a pretty straightforward project right here, as I studied it anyway. And uh, 
on my vast experience in the construction field. And uh, so if you want to come check this out sometime, you want to know what a detailed plan looks like. We got, we got elevations, we got all kinds of, we got electrical stuff and exactly what kind of dirt to use and so on. So that's that. Um, that the estimator has to take this, and, and I didn't even bring the 400-page manual that, that I'm sure a team of attorneys and engineers put together. He has to note all the infrastructure elements like water lines, sewer lines, storm drains, things like quantities of this material and that material, because I never knew. I never knew that, that there were this many kinds of dirt. I didn't know. And that, but it has to, it's very specific, very specific. This many inches or feet or whatever of this particular dirt and then bring in some different kind of dirt and then do this to the dirt and make sure the dirt doesn't come up on this dirt and then you have to do that. And you can't have this kind of dirt on top of this kind of dirt. It has to be a certain... And then they have to look at things like... Uh, the utilities, things like power, phone, cable, traffic signals. Uh, and then you have to project the man, man hours that are required to carry out each step of the job and schedule some timelines. And then you have to catch, you hope that you're catching all of these inevitable things that you may build some margin in there for that. And based on what the team comes up with, you got, then, then you get to submit a price. You're doing all this for free. You're gonna, then you're going to submit a price to either the state or the city or developer, depending on who the, is responsible for paying for the job. And then another set of estimators come from various you know, companies, maybe repeat the entire process and decide whether they're even interested in the job. Then the company can bid on the job. So if you're lucky enough to win the job, the contractor's worst nightmare is to miss something significant in the plans or to submit a bid low enough to get the job but too low to finish the job and make a profit once the overlooked details are added back in. Those are the kinds of things that keep a novice lying awake at night. Um, and I know because some of us were involved in a couple building projects, like a building renovation and building a house a few years ago. You remember that? Yeah. I've noticed that lots of Christians with blueprint mentality approach every major decision like a rookie estimator approaches a set of plans. They're petrified of making a mistake. It's like the guy who can never pull the trigger to get married. Because in the absence of a clear yes from God, I'm not sure what a clear yes even is supposed to look like, but he's afraid to move forward. He's so fearful of marrying the wrong one. And he looks back with regret at all the good ones who got away. I read a really good blog on this a couple days ago. It said that soulmates are made, not born. The people responding to that have been married at least 35 years. I just figured that out. Maintaining a healthy relationship is more about commitment than perfection. Every person on earth has imperfections, and the reality is that there is more than one person that we could spend our lives with. I know, right? This is what a blueprint mentality does. It paralyzes us with fear. In the mistaken belief that there's only one right choice for every major area of life, it paralyzes decision-making. And as a result, we end up hesitating, we're overthinking, rejecting lots of good and acceptable options. It's why I, I like to tell my friends who get their shorts in a wad over every major decision to just relax, just take a breath. If the scriptures tell us what to do, then by all means, do that. And do it now. Well, don't wait any longer. But if not, if the scripture doesn't speak clearly to it, let's make the best choice you can and move on. After sending Jesus to die for our sins and paving the way for our adoption into his family, God isn't going to doom us to a life of regret because we picked the wrong college, we picked the wrong major, we picked the wrong job, or even the wrong spouse. If you pick a spouse, it's the right one. And even if we do make a mistake, there's always a path of, obedience in every situation 
even on the back end of some really stupid decisions. Because I know I've been there. You'll be fine. Another problem with blueprint mentality is a skewed focus. It, it tends to turn our, foc- our focus toward the wrong things. Instead of being concerned about the weightier matters of godliness, you know, things like justice and mercy and obedience and grace, we fixate on finding the right career, the right mate, uh, renting the right apartment, buying the right car. And I'm not, not saying those decisions are unimportant, because they are important, but decisions ultimately create destiny. But, but they aren't, these things aren't nearly as important as a life of daily obedience. For instance, I'm amazed when people talk to me and they ask me for prayer regarding um, whether it's God's will for them to marry someone they're dating while blatantly ignoring God's will for their sexuality. I've never quite figured out how to respond appropriately to that. I have a response that just doesn't come out of my mouth. Because they ask with such sincerity. It's as if, you know, it's never dawned on them that God not, might not bother to show them who to marry when they're already ignoring his instructions about how to date. And it's not as if God's will for your sexuality is hard to find. It's pretty clearly spelled out in the Bible. In most cases, we already know what God expects. We just don't think it works for us in the moment. And their great error is this mistaken assumption that choosing the right mate somehow trumps living the right life. Uh, As a result, I think sometimes a lot of us, we treat uh, God as like a blueprint consultant. (laughs) Sometimes we we turn to the really big decisions in life, but uh, we turn to him then. uh, So we call him in for the big ones. Like, I haven't talked to you lately, but can you come in and weigh in on this one, God? Because we think he's probably not that particularly like, relevant to the day-to-day stuff. I can handle that. But there's a problem with this approach. God doesn't do consulting. When we, can't, we call him in on select things, because you just don't want to get this one wrong. God does God. That's all he does. I mean, it's obviously unfair to paint, uh, you know, with such a broad brush as to imply that everybody who's operated with, uh, you know, God's will as a detailed blueprint kind of mindset, that somehow you ignore God's day-to-day commands. That's not what I'm saying. It's not the case. But a blueprint mindset does tend to turn our focus towards uh, finding rather than becoming. That if I can just find the next step in whatever, what is God, where is God leading me in this? when what he's called us is to become more like Jesus. Pastor and author Larry Osborne from North Coast Church in San Diego said this. He said, I remember asking a college group I was leading, I love this, to list all the traits they were looking for in an ideal mate. I don't know if you've ever done that, if you were a pros and cons list maker when you were dating. Um, He said the lists were impressive. They revealed what most of the students were looking for, mates that were perfectly suited just for them. He says, then I asked everyone to look at their list again. This time... Instead of focusing on what they were looking for and where they might find such a person, I suggested they ask another question. Look at your list, he said. Why would a person like this want to marry you? And he says the room became strangely quiet. 
because their blueprint mentality had put them in search mode. Most of them hadn't even considered that God's will for their future marriage might involve more than finding the right mate or that maybe the most important key to a great marriage might be who they would become, not who they would find. So Paul says this in Romans 12 and verse 2. He says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and I would add, and only then, will you be able to test and approve God, what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If God's will to you is anything less than good, pleasing, and perfect, chances are you've skipped the step of transforming by the renewing of your mind. Let's talk about understanding God's game plan. Because uh, I think besides being a far more accurate metaphor for how God's will works, uh, I think seeing God's will as a game plan emphasizes that the knowledge of God's will is actually within reach. And all the basic guidelines and the principles are found in Scripture. When, with the basics in hand, in hand we, can, we can know what to do and what not to do and how to think and how to live no matter how unusual the situation or how complex the decision has to be. And when we're mastering God's plan, well, it's, it's, it's pretty simple on one hand, but it's highly nuanced on the other. So and I think the longer we're at it, the deeper and better our understanding becomes. The more we are engaged in this process of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, the better our understanding becomes. It's not, I don't think it's out of reach even for the newest of Christians. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 11. He said these words. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, which was a steering guide. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden's light. So with that in mind, let's take a brief flyby of the basics of God's will, the things that once we master them, we'll turn the process of finding and being in God's will into a journey to become someone rather than a search to find something elusive. So number one, I would say obey what we know. Number one, obey what we know. The starting place for finding God's will is obeying the commands and the instructions that we already know. The pathway of obedience always leads to, to more light. It's, the, it's like a dimmer switch principle. If we obey the light we have, we get more. If we, if we disobey the light we have, we seem to have less. And that, that helps to explain why it's such a kind of a waste of time to seek God's leading as if he's a blueprint consultant, to seek his leading at the major crossroads decision if we're currently disobeying him in the things we already know. We can pray all we want. But if we're in the middle of a, of a of blatant disobedience, God doesn't answer that. You're like, whoa, where'd you come up with that? Um, I found it in a couple different places. And I started off in Titus, and, and he actually calls those prayers detestable. When we somehow are seeking his will and yet disobeying his will at the same time. And I know that's hard to hear, but you've got you to take that up with him. Because it's exactly what he says he'll do. It's why I like to tell new Christians not to worry about all the things they don't know. You know, the same goes for the rest of us. If we just simply start with what we already know and then do that, then we're ready to tackle what comes next. So number one is obey what we know. Number two, get the facts. As many as possible. To follow any game plan, especially God's game plan, we have to use our brain. We tend to, in spiritual matters, check our brain at the door, and I don't think that's what God has called us to do at all. 
The facts always matter, especially in the spiritual realm. King Solomon noted that the the wise and righteous check the facts before choosing a course of action. He said, whereas fools don't bother, they just jump to conclusions or they ignore the facts altogether. And unfortunately, in some circles, questioning a spiritual leader, engaging your brain, rigorously checking the facts or hesitating before we jump in is labeled as unspiritual or disrespectful or kind of like subversive or something. But if faith and facts are somehow, somehow they're incompatible, (laughs) I don't believe that at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even the Apostle Paul praised those who carefully checked out what he had to say and made him prove his point to them. He praised them for that. So we have to dismiss this idea that facts and faith are somehow um, incompatible. Biblical faith is not illogical. It doesn't deny or ignore the facts. It fits the facts. And yeah, we may not always understand what God's up to or how he's doing things his way or could possibly kind of work out in a particular situation. But I believe it's never illogical to do what God tells us to do. I think it's the most logical thing in the world. The real issue we all face is determining if our latest crazy idea is really from God or not. You know, was that dream from the Lord or was it last night's pizza? The only way to know is to put it to the test, and that demands a hard look at the facts, and the only way to know with certainty the difference between a harebrained idea and the legitimate leading of the Lord is to lean heavily into what God has already said. Here's, here's, here's a really extreme example of for, for you from the Scripture, from the Old Testament, from Genesis 22. It's a story of Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. How many of you are at least somewhat familiar with that story? If you know the story, you know that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, they both headed to the mountain to do so, uh, seemingly, seemingly with no questions asked. And at the last minute, God stepped in and said, you know, hey, Abraham, hold on, this is just a test. And he provided a ram, was caught in a bush as a substitute for Isaac, and as a picture of Jesus, and he affirmed Abraham's faith. At first glance, Abraham's actions defy logic. Most of us, okay, all of us, uh, think, I'd never do that. But a careful look at the backstory puts things in a different light. Abraham's actions weren't illogical. They fit the facts. He used his brain. In fact, the facts surrounding the situation are what gave him such confidence that God was behind this bizarre request and would work everything out. Don't forget that for decades, God had spoken to Abraham face-to-face. We can't even imagine. He had face-to-face conversations with Abraham. During that time, he'd made a series of increasingly difficult-to-fulfill promises, and each time he came through, culminating, of course, with the birth of Isaac, long after Abraham and his wife were physically able to pull that off. Outside of Jesus, Isaac was like the ultimate miracle baby. So based on these past experiences and the hard facts of the situation, Abraham would have been a fool to disobey God. There was no doubt that it was God himself delivering, delivering the command. The, and the, the instructions weren't cryptic. It was clear. And God had already shown himself to be completely faithful to his promises. We're not all that different. If God has a huge Abraham-like step of faith that he wants us to take, there will be no doubt about what he wants us to do. And the facts will bear it out. And Abraham before doing something rash, you know, just and like Abraham, I should say, before we do something rash, we need to be sure to have our facts straight. Use our brains to confirm that it really is what God wants us to do. Using our brains is a big part of the game plan, especially God's game plan. And he gave it, us our brains for a reason. So it's always a good idea to use them. 
why when you call me, wanting me to use my brain to determine God's will for your life, I'm, off, I'm always going to turn it around and leave it up to you to engage yours first. Use, use your brain, get the facts. Number three, think biblically. <clears throat> it's hard for an athlete to follow a game plan if he misses all the team meetings and never comes to a practice. It's, it, it's just as hard to follow games, God's game plan if we don't know the scriptures. What they actually say as opposed to what we think they might say or what we hope they say. And yet the current state of biblical illiteracy among self-described Christians is, is scary. Do you remember, remember the uh, WWJD thing back in, what, the late 90s maybe? What would Jesus do? There are a few celebrities that still wear those, making a statement, I guess. I found that a lot of people who wore them um, had no idea what Jesus actually said or did or even how to find out. And when they were more common, you know, people wore these bracelets or T-shirts or hats or whatever, um, especially at Christian events, and I was you know, doing a lot of these things with teenagers at the time, go to concerts and conferences, and I was often tempted, and I, I never did it, and it's probably just as well, but I was often tempted to ask someone wearing one of those bracelets if they could help me find the Sermon on the Mount or if they could locate the passage where Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, you know. Um, my point is, it does us no good to try and do what Jesus would do if we have no idea what Jesus actually did. It's not enough to make our best guess. God's game plan, listen, is way too counterintuitive for that. None of us is likely to come up with loving our enemies on our own. We're not going to come up with that idea. We're never going to come up with the idea of serving those that we lead or keeping our word at all costs. Those kinds of responses come from spending time with the playbook. Number four is master the basics. So we've got obey what we know, get the facts, think biblically, and master the basics. And sports are called the fundamentals, the basic skills needed to play the game, whether it's tennis or golf or football or whatever. There are some skills that every player has to master in order to have a chance to win and to succeed. The same holds true for God's will. There are some fundamentals that are part of this game plan that we have to master in order to experience it. These fundamentals are made up of the clear black and white commands and principles of Scripture. They tell us explicitly what God wants us to do or not do in certain situations. Things like tell the truth, be kind, forgive one another, always repay good for evil. No matter how deep the weeds or how difficult a decision or dilemma may be, uh, the fundamentals can always be counted on to steer us in the right direction. The most basic of all the passages that go so far as to basically state this is what God wants or this is God's will. Those are a great place to start, okay? For instance, we're told that God wants everyone to come to a place of repentance, you know, that spiritual turnaround point that results in following Jesus. So it's probably not worth asking God to show us his will for a major decision if we're not willing to follow his son on a daily basis. Because our job is not so much to find something as to become someone, a reflection of his image. It really makes no sense to ask God if I should take that promotion when I'm failing to show respect to my current boss. It makes no sense to ask God what he wants me to do with a relationship when you're ignoring biblical imperatives with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It makes no sense to ask him to help me turn, you know, turn my, God, turn my finances around. You know, I need to cut your break when I keep on taking on more debt and I haven't given a cent to the church ever. 
It makes no sense to ask God to help me lose weight when I eat all my meals in the drive-thru and, you know, eat a donut at every opportunity. It, it makes no sense to seek his direction and help when I resist the words of the Spirit in Scripture or the whisper of the Spirit in my own heart. God indeed does have a plan for us, but it's a game plan with lots of freedom. Not necessarily a blueprint with every detail spelled out. Our job is not so much to find something, it's to become someone. It's to become a reflection of his image and his character, no matter where we find ourselves. Again, the words of Paul, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The band's going to come to the stage, going to sing a song, going to sing a few songs. And over, over the next few weeks, I hope you'll engage with this, I, I want to take some time to talk about the idea of discovering and discerning God's will. I want to talk about what the scripture means when it uses the words God's will, because I think we can actually identify kind of three types of the will of God. And then the idea that God doesn't function as a consultant. He doesn't offer his will as a suggestion or as an option. He expects us to follow and to live within his will. So we're going to talk about the role of wise counsel in the process of discerning God's will. We're going to talk about some of the principles that we find in Scripture that to serve as a guide for us. When a, when a situation isn't necessarily about moral absolutes, you know what I'm talking about? When it seems to be like a gray area, when the choice isn't necessarily about right and wrong, it's more about what's wise and how to let biblical principles guide our decision-making. And then we're going to talk about the importance of having a personal vision, of having a God-given picture of a preferred future, and then making decisions accordingly. So I'm looking forward to digging into this a little bit with you over the next few weeks. I'll do my best to share resources that I've come across that maybe that can help you. We'll do that on Facebook or on email, and I hope you find it helpful too. I love these words of uh, the psalmist in Psalm 25, where he says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth, and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Let's stand together and sing. Show me.